Welcome to Surgical Readings from SRGS, a podcast brought to you by the American College of Surgeons. I'm your host, Dr. Rick Green, and in this series, we will talk to the editors and experts featured in Selected Readings in General Surgery, a publication that highlights highly relevant and practice-changing information from the world's most prominent medical journals. As busy professionals, we don't always have time to read the most current studies. The goal of this podcast is to bring that information to you, providing key takeaways, insights, and perspectives from leading authorities in all surgical specialties and multidisciplinary areas that affect the surgical patient. The opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the participants and not necessarily that of the American College of Surgeons. This is Dr. Rick Green, and I'd like to welcome you to this edition of Surgical Readings. Uh, we're very pleased today to have with us Dr. Girma Tefera, who is uh, not only the director, the medical director of Operation Giving Back at the American College of Surgeons, but also is the division chief in vascular surgery in the Department of Surgery at the University of Wisconsin in Madison, and is a uh, editor of selected readings in general surgery. Welcome, Girma. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Green. So I, I first want to say that uh, this, this vascular uh, overview for selected readings is magnificent. Uh, and I urge all of our readers to, uh, to look at it in depth. And obviously we can't cover everything, but we're going to, we're going to look at aortic uh, aneurysmal disease in this uh, edition. And uh, it's such a pleasure to have an expert with us to talk about this. So, Dr. Tefer, I, I just want to uh, start off by asking you to give us your ideas uh, about sort of the epidemiology of aortic uh, aneurysmal disease. Uh, what should we know about classification? Who's at risk? And uh, maybe we should start with those concepts. No, oh, great, great. Thank you, thank you. And and by the way, I think uh, you introduced me as an, an editor, but I'm an associate editor. Um, the editor is Dr. Flint. So so that's it. I think this is definitely a topic um, that's at uh, at the heart of every vascular surgeon. And you know, and uh, and happy to be on on this particular podcast. Uh, and the content in this edition actually um, contains a lot of information that's absolutely current and also some historical um, uh, data points that I think uh, I should highly recommend everyone actually in general surgery and vascular surgery to, to read it. So that said, aneurysm disease, uh, particularly of the aorta is, uh, is you know, known as a silent killer. And I think uh, in the US, it still remains in the top 10 um, diseases that are associated with mortality. Um, I think it's worth starting maybe with a definition about, you know, when we say an, you know, an, a vessel is aneurysmal, you know, we usually say that when the size of the vessel is increased by about 50% from where the baseline is. So in this particular case, for the infrarenal aorta, that's the site where most of aortic aneurysms are probably anywhere between 90 to 95% of them. Um, 
we started talking about aneurysm at around three centimeters. And, um, and, and with that, uh, some population studies um, indicate uh, that, you know, in people with an age of 50 to 84 years of age, there is a prevalence of about 1.4%. So which puts the total number of patients therefore with aneurysms or you know, abdominal aortic aneurysms specifically to over, to over a million. And, you know, and it is really important to point out here that um, of course aneurysms can be anywhere where there are blood vessels and, and clearly anatomically they can be found in the brain, in the periphery, in the, in the aortas, in the viscerals and, and so on and so forth. But when we talk about aneurysms in general, that we have some classifications that are worth mentioning here, uh, which can be more anatomic. And there is a distinction to be made between a true and a false. There are aneurysms we call up degenerative, traumatic and infectious and, and so on and so forth. And, and when it comes to etiology, um, there's really a lot of work still going on. And I should point actually to some of the, you know, the etiologies that anchor around um, uh, hereditary origins in some of the patients such as the Marfan's uh, syndromes or the Erdogan syndrome. Um, uh, but most of the etiology, however, is around um, the collagen and the tissue that gets actually maybe degraded that um, leads into aneurysmal formation. And in fact, there's a lot of emphasis around and studies around all the inflammatory markers and, and also some, some specific enzymes such as the, met, the matrix metalloproteases um, and in particular, um, the MMP2 and 9 having some elastolytic behavior. So, so there is a lot still uh, in research and there is really no definitive, you know, one silver bullet in terms of cause, uh, but there are a lot of factors that are playing a role in the development of aneurysms. And, you know, and just to summarize though, a lot of them are associated with some degenerative changes that happens within the wall. Of the aneurysm. Just last point I want to make, you know, clear for, you know, learners is it's really important to make sure people understand the difference between what's a true aneurysm and a false aneurysm. A lot of times, we, you know, we fail to really clearly distinguish that. And the true aneurysm is whenever the wall of the aorta or whatever vessel it is, all the three layers are part of the world of the aorta, uh, or the, of the aneurysm, sorry. And that's when we talk about true aneurysm, whereas false aneurysm is in a situation where we actually have some kind of um, uh, a defect, an injury on the vessel wall. So the collection of blood uh, or this aneurysmal formation is actually outside the wall of the of the um, vessel that we are talking about. So those distinctions are important from therapeutic, prognostic, and whatnot perspective. And so I just wanted to make sure the true and the false definitions are clearly there for everybody. To, to well, this is a great, uh, a great way to start. Uh, and uh, I 
I think you, you've highlighted beautifully that we're not just thinking about mechanical factors anymore in aneurysmal disease. Uh, we're thinking about other things. And you mentioned inflammation. I want to touch on, on smoking for a minute because we know smoking is a significant etiologic uh, factor. Uh, can you comment a little about that? Are, are we making inroads as, uh, as smoking habits change in, uh, in aneurysm formation? Yeah, no, thank you for, for that. I think as a vascular surgeon, you know, smoking is, of course, the number one um, etiology we actually have connected the dots to so many vascular conditions. Um, and, and, you know, and the same here with aneurysm, aneurysm of degenerations as well. And to a point where uh, smoking is so um, connected with aneurysm of degeneration, that even the US Preventative Services Task Force has issued recommendation for screening for any, anyone above age 65 to 75 of age, particularly men with any smoking history. So the direct link um, is, is actually there. Uh, and you know, Dr. Green, to, to your question about, you know, um, smoking cessation and you know um, and reduction in prevalence or incidence. I think those kind of data points and population studies have yet to be kind of you know um, ascertained, uh, but but clearly there has been shown that there is indeed um, a significant uh, reduction in progression of disease with smoking cessation. Um, and you know, and there are uh, there are um, not only in the um, in the aneurysmal world, but also for the peripheral vascular surgery, um, smoking um, cessation is showing significant benefits uh, in all aspects of not only the the peripheral vascular piece, but also the cardiovascular, if you will, you know, incidences of recurrent coronary artery disease or death from from um, acute coronary syndromes and so on and so forth are showing some improvement. And so I think this is going to require um, an additional study, but the connection with uh, smoking is definitely strong. And there is also a connection with blood pressure for that matter. And uh, in fact, you, know, you can think about this as a mechanical thing, right? So where people who have high blood pressures uh, definitely will have more propensity to strain those vessels and, you know, and aggravate the, you know, more importantly, not so much the, not so much the creation, uh, uh, but actually the expansion of the aneurysm. So tobacco is really important to consider or think about as a, an inciting or as a risk factor. It's also a cause for a further expansion and it's associated with also an increased risk in ruptures, uh, particularly because it's also associated with pulmonary disease that leads into also an increased incidence of rupture. So, so smoking is definitely one of those main you know, pieces that um, we need to advise our patients on. Um, well, these are, these, are great, these are great points. I, I, I want to transition a little because you started off your discussion saying that aneurysmal disease is a silent killer. So we really need to think about screening. And we know that screening has, uh, 
has been important over the years. Uh, many of the papers uh, in the selected readings on vascular surgery comment on that. And I, I want to uh, ask you, what, is, what should we think about in, in screening? How should we screen? What, what imaging should we use to screen these patients? Yes, yes, very important uh, points and questions. And, and you know, from screening perspective, I think the, the best diagnostic modality and screening modality is you know, the use of ultrasound, which is costly, you know, less costly. It's available in many places and you know, it's easy to do. Um, so that is definitely the way, the way to go. Um, the second piece is from a screening perspective, there is already an approved uh, US preventative services, you know, uh, limited recommendation for one-time screening of men between age 65 to 75. And usually that is, you know, the recommendation is actually at enrollment to Medicare. And so this message has to really be resonating more with the primary care physicians. And this is true for any men who have smoked or have a history of smoking. However, multiple other um, practice guidelines from societies, be it the vascular surgery society or, or the cardiovascular societies have, have shown actually screening is important also in other groups of patients, particularly again, men with you know, age 50 to 60 who have a first degree relative uh, that has an abdominal aortic aneurysm, um, regardless of smoking history for that matter. And, um, and they also make a point that women but age 65 and older would also benefit from screening, uh, particularly if they have smoked or if they have a relative uh, that's a first degree relative that has an abdominal aortic aneurysm. And, and, and Dr. Green, one thing that is really important to, to mention here is that the cost effectiveness of screening for aneurysms has actually been shown multiple times, particularly in the European settings. You know, there have been studies in, in, in the UK, in, in Denmark, in Sweden, where the, um, the quality adjusted life years um, that has been actually positively significantly impacted has led to the recommendations for a much wider screening in those countries. And so, so, so this is where screening plays a role. And I think as vascular surgeons, uh, surgeons in general, we just need to make sure our primary care physicians know some of these rules of engagement, if you, if you will, and, uh, and get these aneurysms early. Because once we get them and identify them, we can prevent rupture in 90% of the time. And most of the death that happens from aneurysms, as you know, is because of ruptures. Well, these are great points. Uh, you know, in many disease states, we talk about the gold standard of imaging. So as we transition into our surgical management, as you're going to operate on a patient, or even if we're going to do an endovascular repair, what, what is your gold standard of looking at the aneurysm, let's say in the abdominal aorta, as it relates to the renal arteries, uh, what should we do? A CT scan, an MRI? What's, what's your suggestion? Well, I, you know, I think um, the ultrasound is really more sensitive for screening purposes, and I wouldn't use that for planning treatment. If I have to plan a treatment, and as most of us do, 
Um, CT, um, CT angio is actually the gold standard. You know, it gives us a lot of, um, of course, anatomic um, demarcation. We use this to define some of the criteria we use uh, to use either an endovascular versus open repair. MRI is, is also, of course, very sensitive and we can do a lot of planning with it. Uh, the unfortunate thing is, you know, MRI doesn't really provide us with good information about calcifications, and um, which is sometimes really a very important information to have, particularly if you are planning um, an open procedure. You know, you need to know if you, this vessel is clampable. You know, and if you want to do an endovascular repair, you want to know if that neck of the aorta has a lot of calcium or not for seal purposes. So, so I should say the answer here is whenever possible, CT scan is the best actually modality to diagnose, as well as make treatment plans um, because it provides you with a wealth of information that you need for planning purposes. Excellent points. So as we transition now into thinking about doing an open procedure versus an endovascular repair, how should we make a, a decision regarding that? What are the, what are the criteria uh, for those two types of approaches? Yeah, so I think the, the first, you know, most important um, aspect that one has to define is, you know, have some anatomic classification based on the level of the aneurysm. You know, although we, we always say the majority of the abdominal aortic aneurysm is below the renal arteries and above the aortic bifurcation. There are you know, situations where um, up to 20 to 30% of the time, um, iliacs might be aneurysmal at the same time, the iliac vessels, or the aortic aneurysm might be right close to the renal artery, but may not include the renal arteries, and in which case we call them an infrarenal, uh, but they can also be used, to, used just a renal, which is basically at the level of the renal arteries or pararenal when it really includes. So those definitions are important because the treatment modality uh, may change. Dr. Green, over well, the past, 20 years, um, there has been really a revolution, if you will, in vascular surgery, where the approach to the common vascular problems um, has changed in significant ways because we are we have adopted a lot of minimally invasive techniques. And in this case, an endovascular abdominal aortic aneurysm repair is kind of a becoming more and more the gold standard. But we have to really make sure um, uh, we select the patients correctly and clearly um, for you know, either one of them based on some of the anatomic situations, based on some of the comorbidities of the patients. So if we think about outcomes, uh, looking at the long term, because there's been a, a, a good number of years now where some endovascular techniques are used, uh, what, what does the literature tell us about the outcomes of open procedures versus endovascular procedures? Oh, this is a, a great question. And, you know, I, I think um, the distinction between are we talking about the short term of the long term is really a critical one to keep in mind uh, because uh, we know 
in the short term, meaning in the perioperative phase, there is some survival benefit that's clearly been shown by, by endovascular uh, modalities. But in the long term, uh, particularly one of the studies that you know everybody should read is um, a VA study called the OVER trials that compared open uh, versus endovascular. And at nine years, actually, um, it is uh, significant to know that the mortality was higher in the, in the endovascular group. One thing that we forget is, you know, those patients who have had endovascular repair are still at risk of rupture. And in fact, there is a good amount of ruptures that happens from what we call endolites uh, that tips the scale, if you, if you will, the balance, the longer we follow these patients. And so in the long term, um, clearly the, um, the open repair patients have shown uh, a better survival rate. So that's why upfront, you know, this information is important and very relevant to advise the patients about this, to counsel them appropriately and select appropriately, you know, to really give them the modality or the surgical care that they need. That's said- Delighted that you, you brought up informed consent. Uh, and I think that's so important for this discussion. So you, you mentioned endoleaks and some of the specific complications of endovascular repair. How do we follow those patients who have had those types of repairs to look for these complications long-term? Yes, um, uh, we have to first define quickly what these endoleaks are. You know, these endoleaks are defined between you know, type one through type five. You know, I should say that type one is a leak that actually is most problematic because it is leaking around what we call the proximal seal zone or the distal seal zone. And therefore the pressure in the aneurysm sac is systemic, right? So, so which means the, the aneurysmal growth is not gonna be mitigated. And so type one leaks are very critical. They have to be dealt with. The type three leaks are leaks that happen because of say component separations, because most of these endovascular stents are modular. So if there is a component separation or some kind of really defect, if you will, you know, a hole of something. So, so again, with this, you have also a systemic pressurization of the aneurysm sac. So, so those cases have to be dealt with as soon as identified. And type one leaks usually are identified during surgery. So you have to do all what you need to do to mitigate them. That said, endovascular repaired patients have to be followed lifelong. There are not only this endoleaks that happens, the type twos are, you know, lumbar vessels bleeding back into the sac or, or the type you know, four is more a transudate that kind of continues to sweat, if you will, into the sac and that continues to grow. And there are situations where we don't know really why these aneurysms are growing. And so, so the follow-up is going to be lifelong. And, um, and depending on the type of endolite, uh, you have to really be aggressive to treat them. And that's also why the secondary interventions in endovascular repair patients is usually a much higher incidence uh, in the long term compared to the open repair patients. And, and so 
follow-up is lifelong. It's not uncommon to actually go back to an open repair in some of these patients that are failing. It's better to actually get to them before they rupture um, with the endovascular device in them. And so, so explanting and opening and repairing is happening. And you know, we don't have a good amount of data, but, uh, but the mortality might be a little bit higher than what just a regular endovascular repair should be. Uh, but you can also imagine that these patients are a little bit older, more comorbidities because after so many years uh, since the implant. So, so, so lifelong surveillance is absolutely a mandatory thing. Very good points. You know, one of the things that's uh, covered very nicely in selected readings is something I always worried about in an open repair, and that is how to handle the inferior mesenteric artery. Uh, because, of course, we always worry about ischemia of the left colon. What are your thoughts on that? And uh, what are your recommendations for the vascular surgeon? Yes, you know, this is an important point you bring, Dr. Green, because um, mesenteric ischemia, particularly colonic ischemia, if it happens, all of a sudden the mortality of that patient goes significantly um, increased. And so, uh, from the get-go, before even doing the, the case, some strategies around it is important. I would usually recommend for people to understand the vascular anatomy of the mesenteric systems. In other words, what is a superior mesenteric artery like? Is it widely patent? Is there significant stenosis? How about the celiac artery? What are all these mesenteric vessels doing? Is really important information to get because it may help you intraoperatively to lean one way or the other. I think um, in general, uh, what most of us will do in, intraoperatively and, and is, is observe for the back bleeding from the orifice of the inferior mesenteric artery. Um, and you know, we make decisions based on, is there enough collateral blood coming back from, you know, from the other mesenteric system supplying the color or not? So that is really, almost like an eyeballing kind of situation. If we don't think there is um, back bleeding that is really robust, um, we may lean towards reimplanting that mesenteric, you know, uh, inferior mesenteric artery. A lot of times we also use handheld dopplers to listen at signals um, at the mesentery. Um, and, and listen across particularly the sigmoid and the right column, and that might help you in the decision-making process. A lot of times, if preoperatively the inferior mesenteric artery is occluded, then there is really no need to reimplant that. Uh, but in the strategy of thinking about colonic ischemia, it's always critical to keep in mind that the hypogastric um, or the internal iliac arteries are open. You know, at least one of them should all be open. Uh, and, and so you need to have a real strategy going into this from the get-go and understanding all the collateral circulation, the pelvic circulation, the, the hypogastric circulation, uh, as well as the status of the inferior mesenteric artery. Is it occluded, is it open? Preoperatively is really important going into the case. These are excellent points. Uh, you, you, of course, uh, 
in the beginning said we we need to recognize the problem before potential rupture. So I, I would ask you, uh, are there any new things we should know about management of the ruptured aortic aneurysm uh, for our listeners? Yes. So um, first of all, I think um, we all should recognize ruptured aneurysm is really, you know, lethal uh, in most instances. In fact, in in kind of older literature, we always say probably 50% of the patients who have ruptures don't even make it to the hospital, right? And, and of those who arrive to the hospital, maybe half of them survive. So that's what we usually, you know, go by. Um, right now, in most of our institutions, we have um, strategies around the base modality for the patients um, before they arrive, because uh, a lot of times when patients are referred to medical centers that handle ruptured aneurysms, before the patient gets actually to the hospital, we may have the images sent to us via image share. Um, and in those situations, we can quickly identify um, if these are endovascular candidates. Uh, a lot of our institutions have on the shelf actually endovascular grafts available. And so we may wait for the patient ready to do this um, with the endovascular modalities, which is of course, minimally invasive uh, situation in these patients. The strategy of you know, endovascular first um, or in all patients doesn't work. Um, I think you have to really tailor again, uh, be very patient specific. Uh, some of these patients may come in extremis with you know, um, low blood pressures that you need to find ways to clamp that aorta. In some instances, we may actually use balloon occlusions to quickly endovascularly get in and, and, uh, and occlude the aorta so that uh, we can um, stop the bleeding and then complement that with an open repair. So, so there isn't really one superior than the other. I really do think it depends on the patient's condition. It depends on the anatomy of the aneurysm. Uh, and it depends on the institution where these patients get to. Are they usually ready for this? Are they connected with the health network so that they can have the images ahead of time? So all those really now are affecting the outcomes of these patients. Overall, I can tell you though, in my institution where I am, the majority of the patients that come through um, um, seem to be a lot of times candidates for our endovascular repair. And we have the tools, the technology, and our hybrid operating rooms are usually ready um, to take care of them endovascularly. That seems physiologically less taxing, if you will, uh, but we have to be also aware of the complications uh, that may lead for an open, actually, um, intervention in those patients who have already been treated endovascularly as well. So, so, so there is really no one answer. I think it should be, again, patient selection and patient conditions. Well, these are magnificent points. Uh, in this edition of Selected Readings uh, and in our surgical readings, uh, we've been talking with Dr. Gamer Tefera, who is the Chief of the Division of Vascular Surgery in the Department of Surgery at the uh, University of Wisconsin in Madison. 
He's associate uh, editor of Selected Readings in General Surgery, and he is the medical director of Operation Giving Back for the American College of Surgeons. Girma, it's been an absolute delight to talk with you today uh, on our podcast. Thank you, Dr. Green. A pleasure as usual talking with you. Thank you for joining us on Surgical Readings from SRGS, a podcast brought to you by the American College of Surgeons. I hope you enjoyed the episode. Please let your friends, trainees, and colleagues know about the podcast. On social media, use the hashtag SurgicalReadings. You can subscribe to Selected Readings in General Surgery at facs.org slash srgs. Options are available for individuals, institutions, and residents. I'm Dr. Rick Green. Until next time, thank you for listening and learning.